good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to Sherwood Oaks. Uh, my name's Sean. I am the minister in waiting, and I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> I actually now have an office at the East Campus, and I'm kind of half expecting that to be my name tag there. So a lot's happened since the last time uh, I was up to, to preach here at East, and I just want to say just how grateful um, I am, my family is, just for everyone's love and encouragement and support, the notes, the emails. It's not gone unnoticed, and we are valuing that, and it's just so good to, to know that, you know, Tom and I are together on this transition. Uh, the staff is together on this, and it's good to know that as a church family, we're in this together as well. And so we're going to continue to pray quite a bit over the next eight months. I'm convinced that's the most important thing that we can do. And it's one of the reasons why we're asking everyone the first Wednesday of the month uh, to join us in fasting and just bringing this before the Lord, pleading for him for a smooth transition that he's glorified and honored throughout this whole entire process. Uh, hopefully you have had a chance to pick up one of our prayer guides. If you haven't, we've got these scattered all over the church. Pick one up. On the first Wednesday of every month, like I said, we're asking the entire church family just to join us in fasting. It doesn't have to be for an entire day. It doesn't even have to be from a meal. It can just be something that you typically spend time doing, giving that up for a period of time on the first Wednesday of every month and just praying over this transition. And uh, there's some different ways inside of this little handout that you can join us in praying. This month is to pray specifically for Tom and Elsie and their family as they prepare for their new season of, of ministry. But we're excited about what's ahead and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you are good and that you love us. You are kind and gracious. Father, thank you for the ways that you speak to us through your word. Sometimes it is a word of hope. Sometimes it's a word of conviction. But Lord, uh, we trust in the promise that you always speak to us through it. And so God, would you please do that today? Would your voice be the first and the only voice that we hear from? Lord, not mine but your Holy Spirit speaking through me as we come to just a greater knowledge and appreciation of your word and what it speaks into us. And so may we just, as we tackle this, this very difficult topic uh, and this very challenging scripture, uh, would you give us the grace to be able to know the heart of our loving Heavenly Father more through our time spent together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the next several months, uh, we're going to get a chance to get to know each other a little bit more. And I thought that this morning I may start off uh, just by introducing my family to you so you can at least uh, see what they look like. And if you see them walking around, you'll be able to, to put uh, a name with a face, some, some people to, to, the, to our family. And so uh, this is my wife, Amber. And we have been married for 16 years. It'll be 17 years in, in January. Uh, Amber is an amazing person. She is so beautiful inside and out. She is loving and caring and giving. Uh, she primarily works as a stay-at-home mom at this uh, little four-person enterprise down in Bedford. And she does a really good job managing our, our household. But she also spends a lot of time uh, serving at the school that our, our girls attend. Uh, she's a CASA in Lawrence County. Uh, foster care adoption has been something that's been close to our heart for quite a while now. And so that's how Amber is, is kind of living that out as a, as a CASA in Lawrence County right now. Uh, she works a few afternoons each week at a little boutique store down in Bedford, which if I can just plug that just for a little bit, if you haven't been down to Bedford on the square to do some shopping, there are some great little stores down there. Go down there, spend your money, support our local economy. We need it. 
we'd love for you to come down and we'll even treat you to a nice lunch at the Golden Corral while you're down there, all right? Tim will pick up your tab, huh? So, <laughs> so that's my wife, Amber. I'm looking forward to you to, to get to know her a little bit more. And then we have two daughters, Adeline and Nora. This is our daughter, Adeline. Um, I love that picture. That was taken uh, last, last Sunday night at our fall kickoff party, which was so much fun, wasn't it? I mean, the, the bounce houses, the, the food was incredible. Uh, but I think my favorite part was um, seeing the, the hayride fly around our parking lot. Somebody said... We need to make t-shirts that say, I survived Hayride 2019. And that's like a true story because that thing was crazy. Uh, But that is Adeline. She's seven years old. Uh, She's in second grade at Parkview Primary School down in Bedford. And then this is Nora. Nora is six years old. She is in first grade and just two sweet little girls. And we have a really cool God story about how our little family was formed. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you one of these days as well. And something, you know, beyond our family, something that you're going to to learn about me over the coming months and and years is um, that I'm pretty mediocre at most things. Uh, And I'm like, I've come to a place in my life where I've accepted that. Like, I'm not going to be a great basketball player. I'm not going to be the fastest runner or cyclist, but I'm going to be okay. But I'll tell you the, the, the two places that I don't want to settle for mediocrity. Number one, as a husband to Amber, and number two, as a daddy to Addie and Nora. And the reason why I don't want to settle uh, for just being good enough in those two areas is, is one, because, you know, I believe that that that's my highest calling. Before I was called to lead a church, I was called to be a husband and a father. And so I want to do that as well as I can. I just want us to make sure we're all clear on this in the same page. And in my life, it's Jesus, it's my family, and then it's y'all, okay? So I hope that we can agree to that, but, but I think that that will hopefully allow me to serve you better as I serve them. Thanks. I also want to be the best husband uh, and and especially father that I can be because I also know that in a lot of ways, how my girls grow up to understand and relate to God is, is in a lot of ways influenced by how they experience me as their father. Hey, what I've learned in, in nearly 20 years of ministry is maybe something that, that you've learned in your own life is that we have this tendency to project our experiences with our earthly fathers onto our heavenly father. And so we take what we experienced and how we interacted with our earthly father and we just kind of project that onto our heavenly father and assume like, well, this is just what, what God is like as, as well. And, and so for some of us in here, that's like really great news. Maybe you grew up with an incredible example of your heavenly father that you got to see and touch and hold and be held by. Like you never questioned your father's love, even in times of discipline. You knew that he was safe and that he would be there for you in good times and in bad. And so for you, it's easy to understand God as good and loving and kind and gracious because that was what you saw in your earthly father as you were growing up. But for others of us in here this morning, for some who are maybe even watching online right now or listening to this on the podcast, you've, you have to jump over some hurdles to get to that place in your understanding of God. Maybe for you, love wasn't unconditional. Instead, love was a commodity to be exchanged. And so if you behave properly and you're good, then you will receive and you'll feel love. If you step out of line, then all of a sudden that kind of gets pulled away. 
maybe for, for you growing up, uh, your home was filled with all of this tension. You felt like you had to walk on eggshells all the time. Maybe there were certain rules that you had to follow when dad was home that you didn't have to follow any other time. And that's left you with some pain, with some, some scars. And so now this experience with your earthly father has kind of begun to, to shape how you view your heavenly father and how you approach him. And so you don't see him as kind and loving and safe. Instead, you see him more as this like strict disciplinarian. You, you fear him and not like in a healthy way where you respect him, but you fear him that, that he's just waiting and looking for a reason to knock you down or to put you back in your place or to flex his authority over you. And so God doesn't feel safe to run to when you've messed up and you need forgiveness. He doesn't feel like a loving father who's well, ready to, to welcome you back home with open arms like we looked at last week in the story of the prodigal son. We're in the second week of our series called Bring Your Own God. And if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. It's a little dark in here. You may not be able to see it unless you have that Bible app. If you can't, then we'll have the, the words up on the screen. And just so you know, this isn't like cool mood lighting that we're going for. This isn't like an effect. Uh, you know, you've probably seen we're, we're replacing our roof here. Some rain leaked in. It got onto our control board for our house lights. So we're figuring it out. Until then, we've got this really cool coffee shop vibe that's uh, going on in our, in our worship center. So Hebrews chapter 12, let's hang on to, to that here just for a moment. And the idea behind this series of bring your own God, it's, it's, it's that when it comes to our understanding of God, so many of us, we, we bring these ideas and um, sometimes good ideas and sometimes bad ideas. We bring these, these assumptions. We bring these misconceptions about the nature and the character of God. We bring all of these in, maybe things that we've, we've been taught, um, maybe some things that we've seen uh, other people believe and, and uh, maybe just some things like as we use our own logic, we, we bring all of this to kind of shape who we think that God is, what he's like, what his nature, what his character is like, how we relate to him, how he relates to us. And, and, and sometimes like we create a good and healthy understanding of who God is. But, but oftentimes when we do that, when we pull all from different places, we end up creating a God that's in our own image. We end up creating a God that's based on our own understanding. We create a God that's much different than the heavenly father that's revealed um, in scripture. And so for many people, this idea that they have about God that's been informed by all of these different places is that God is a strict disciplinarian waiting to punish any wrongdoing. I was talking to some friends of mine about this a few weeks ago, and one of them, he's got a great sense of humor and on, and on even a difficult topic like this. He, he said, you know, when we have this image of God as a disciplinarian, we view him as this cosmic whack-a-mole player. You remember that game? If you don't remember it, let's check out this video just to, to jog our memory. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now. Okay, here we go. It's go time. I'm going to take off.
I love that video so much. I, I, I always knew that John Robertson was intense, but man, I saw a whole nother side of him there in that uh, little, little video. So if you're not sure who the guy is who uh, wiped the floor with us and whack a shark, uh, that is Sergio Lima. He is the new Iglesia Hispana minister here at Sherwood Oaks, doing a great work uh, reaching out to our Latino community in Monroe County. And like, that was not set up. He was really that good at that game. And so <laughs> the point in all of this is that whack-a-mole or whack-a-shark in this case makes for a really fun game, but it makes for horribly oppressive theology. If you kind of walk through life feeling like, like God just has this hammer and he's waiting for you to pop up out of line, he's going to put you back down into your place, you're going to walk around with this fear and this angst, and you're going to have a really hard time understanding God as a loving, good, generous, and kind heavenly father. But so many people live in this fear. They live in this, this fear that when something painful happens, a painful breakup, a, a painful diagnosis, a painful change, that when something painful happens in our life, so many people, because of their understanding of God, they begin to ask, what did I do to deserve this? Maybe that's a question you've asked yourself before. What did I do to deserve this? You start going through the Rolodex of your past experiences, wondering what was so bad that, that it caused you to deserve this. And maybe you even ask the question, why is God punishing me? And we find in the Bible at least two times when Jesus has the opportunity to affirm this narrative of a disciplinarian God, but instead he chooses to teach us something different about him. The first one is in Luke chapter 13. Jesus is asked to explain kind of some, some, some news of the day, a couple of situations that had happened. And, and they ask him, you know, Jesus, give an account for this. And, and, and these two events, um, one of them uh, was caused by human cruelty, which, you know, we're no strangers to in our world today. Uh, another one was caused by natural disaster. And so Jesus tries to explain these, these events. And the common thinking of that day, much like today, is that, you know, if people suffered for something, then they probably had it coming to them. They probably deserved what they were getting. And, and we're even going to hear this, I think, in coming days as Hurricane Dorian sweeps through Miami and then up the eastern seaboard. There are people who are going to come out and, and say they're going to be religious leaders who, who use their platform to say this is God's judgment on these communities. This is God's judgment on America. And the people in Luke 13, they felt the exact same way. And, and listen, I'm telling you, if there were any correlation between sin and punishment, Jesus could have easily said, yep, that's the way it works. You get what you have coming to you. Justice was served. But that's not what he does. Instead, he uses this tragedy not to explain how God punishes people, but to remind us that there is a fate far worse than death for those who do not repent from their sin. The second account is found in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They come across a man who is born blind, and one of his disciples says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because obviously, that's how God works in their minds. Someone had to have sinned for this to happen. God was clearly punishing someone here. And again, Jesus has the opportunity to affirm this dominant narrative of his day, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he stops and he heals the man. 
And I think that this is important. I mean, not only does it show God's power, Jesus' power to, to heal, but I think it's also important because Jesus, God in flesh, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. I mean, everything that God is, we see in Jesus. And so if Jesus thought that this man's blindness was fair and just punishment for someone's sin, then he would have just kept on walking. Justice has been served. There's no need to do anything else about it. But instead, Jesus heals him. And not only does he reveal the power of God in that moment, he also pushes against this image of a disciplinarian God that so many people held on to, both then and people hold on to now. You see, the God that Jesus describes as a heavenly father who is good, who is always out for our good, even when we don't understand it, the God that Jesus reveals is not this God who is interested in balancing some eternal checkbook where if we do good, then good is going to be added to our account. But if we do bad, then there's going to be a withdrawal and it's going to be painful. When bad things happen, it's not God out to punish us for something that we have done. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a broken and fallen world, a world that is not as God intended it to be. So we can be confident that our heavenly father is not out to punish us. But, but then we come across texts like what we read today that I think when, when interpreted incorrectly can add to this narrative of a disciplinarian God. But what we find in our text today is that like any good and loving father, there are times when our heavenly father does discipline us. But the difference between a God who disciplines us and a God who punishes us is the difference between a loving father who corrects us out of that love and for our good. It's the difference between a loving father and an abusive father who punishes us out of anger and a need to control. Look at our text with me, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 7. The author writes this, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. There's so much that we can unpack in these five verses. I mean, we could spend an entire sermon series just looking through them. But what I want to do this morning is just ask a few questions of this text and hopefully help us understand the difference between a God who disciplines us out of love and a God who punishes us out of anger. Because it's a very important distinction to make if we're going to have a proper understanding of God and we're going to know how we can interact with him. And so the first question that I want to explore this morning is why does God discipline us? And I think that our text lays it out clearly that God disciplines us not out of 
anger, but out of love. He disciplines us because he loves us. We are his children. We have been adopted into his family through Jesus. And like any good father, he is going to correct us for our own benefit when he sees us going down a path that might lead to our, our destruction. Our text even says that, God dis, that God's discipline is proof that we are his beloved children. It says if we don't undergo discipline by our heavenly father, then maybe we even should question if we are one of his children because God only disciplines his children. And the same is true for us, right? A few weeks ago, our daughters were out playing with some of the neighbor kids who live across the alley from us. They play together nearly every single day. It doesn't matter, rain, shine. I mean, they, they're out there playing outside in our backyard nearly every day. And we don't have a, a lot of rules when it comes to playing outside at our house, but we do have one rule that we remind them of over and over and over. And in fact, we tell our girls this rule so much that even their friends know this rule. And the rule is don't play in the garage. It's very simple. It's very easy. Just don't play in the garage. The, the whole world is yours. Just don't play in the garage. There's too many things that you can hurt yourself on. There's too many things that you can hurt others with. Uh, too many things that could get broken. So just stay, stay out of the garage. Our girls know that's the one rule. And so do all the, the kids in our neighborhood as well. Well, uh, afternoon, a couple of weeks ago, um, we were all inside and the, the kids from across the alley came over, knocked on the door. Hey, can Addie and Nora play? And so we told them, yeah, head on out. You know, we're figuring out dinner plans. We'll let you know when it's ready. And so they went outside and about five minutes later, they came running back into the house. Mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, Cohen broke a window, Cohen broke a window. And we're like, oh no, this can't be good. So we ran out first just to make sure that Cohen is, is okay. This little five-year-old boy broke a window. We want to make sure that he's all right. And, and as we get there, I, I realize, oh, the glass the glass is broken in the garage, and now I've got all sorts of questions about what was going on here. And we find Cohen was, was okay, amazingly. Um, he only had a little cut on his finger, but what we found out was happening was that they were playing cops and robbers. Cohen was the robber, and of course he had been caught, and jail was our garage. And so they put him in jail and they ran outside to the backyard and they were looking at him through the window and Cohen was banging on the glass going, let me out, let me out, let me out. And the glass shattered all around him, all around him. And so we made sure, like I said, that Cohen was okay. And we said, girls, head on inside. Mommy and daddy are going to breathe a little bit and we'll figure out where we go from here. And so later on that night, we started talking about, you know, this is why we have a rule like this, not to play in the garage. And we started talking about, you know, that we're going to have to discipline you now. And so this is what mommy and daddy have decided. No TV for a week and you can't go outside and play for a week unless one of us goes with you. And if we don't feel like going out with you, then you're going to stay inside. All right. And so like, okay, okay, okay. So we thank God that Cohen was okay and went to bed. The next morning, about nine o'clock, Cohen came knocking on the door. Hey, can Addie and Nora play? And I open, I'm like, ah, sorry, buddy, they're, they're grounded. And he's like, oh, okay. And I closed the door and he ran off. And I look back and Addie and Nora were staring at me going, that's not fair. <laughs> Kids' favorite words, right? That's not fair. Why, why does Cohen get to play outside? He's the one that broke the window. And like, listen, one, you knew the rules. And two, I can't discipline Cohen. Like, I'm not his dad, but I am your dad, whether you like it right now or not. I am your father, and I can discipline you. And I'm doing it, 
out of love. I'm doing it out of love, I promise. Because we want you to grow up to be, you know, functioning adults who know that sometimes actions have consequences. <laughs> I think the same is true. Like when God disciplines us, he, he does it as this loving heavenly father. He is perfect in all of his ways. His ways are more pure and perfect than what ours will ever be. God is not out to punish us, but he's out to correct us for our own good and the good of others. And God's correction is proof of our adoption into his family. Because left on our own, we would drift from him and be led astray. And God's discipline just, it's like course correction that brings us back onto the right path. So that's a brief answer as to the why. I guess the next question I want to ask is how? How does God discipline us? And this is where we start getting into some choppy waters. But I want to look just briefly at a few ways that I believe that God disciplines us, a few tools that, that he uses. And, and the first way is through his word. You know, I'll be honest, there are times where I'm reading scripture. There are times where I'm even preaching scripture. And, and I think to myself, man, I don't, I don't like what this says. I don't, this doesn't sit right with me. There are times when I read scripture where it convicts me, it challenges me, it steps on my toes. And in that moment, I have to decide, am I going to allow myself to be shaped by God's word, even if it's difficult, or am I going to try to shape and mold God's word into my own understanding and experiences and beliefs? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God gave us his word, his, his inspired word to shape and mold us more into the image of Jesus, not just to conform us, but to set us up for the best possible life and for every good work that he has in store for us. And his word is one of those things that he uses to, to mold us into the image of Jesus. Another tool are his people. He uses godly friends who are willing to speak truth into our lives with love and grace. And I'm, I'm telling you that I'm a better follower of Jesus. I'm a better husband, father, minister. I'm better because of people who spoke truth to me in love, whether I wanted to hear it or not. They did it. And I'm a better person because of it. They've called out my sin in loving ways and they helped steer me back onto the right path. We all need people like that in our lives if we're truly wanting to follow Jesus. It's one of the reasons why we offer life groups at Sherwood Oaks. Because all of us need people in our lives that are committed to helping us become more like Jesus. And if you're not sure what life groups are or if you should be a part of one, check out this video to learn more about them. The second chapter of Acts paints a picture of the church in its purest form. Christians were meeting together in small groups in their homes, eating together, praying together, and learning together. And the Lord added to their number daily. Every week we experienced the collective power of a large corporate worship gathering on Sunday morning. But we know that our need for community, friendships, growth, and support can best be met in smaller groups of eight to 12 members. These small groups or life groups allow members to share their dreams, 
successes, and struggles in the intimate setting of close friends. God created us for community and small groups are His way of helping us grow spiritually and find encouragement. Our life groups are the perfect environment to act out our faith by living out the Sherwood Oaks values, living like God owns everything, mentoring across generations, thinking like everyday missionaries, telling life-changing faith stories, and creating fun, refreshing experiences. Jesus used a group of 12 to share his life, disciple others, and ultimately change the world. What about you? Great tool that we have here at Sherwood Oaks, wonderful minister, and I hope that you'll get plugged in to one. Next Sunday, uh, September 8th at 6 p.m., we're doing an event in the gym called Group Link. Um, we invite you to come. If you're looking for a group of people that you can get plugged in with, uh, do life with, um, be shaped and molded more into the image of Jesus with, uh, come check that out. You can register. You can learn more by going to socc.org slash lifegroups. So God uses his word. He uses his people. But he also uses life experiences. And I'll be honest, this is the part of um, our text in this topic that I've wrestled with the most over the last few weeks, trying to find, you know, how God uses these things in our life. Because I don't believe that God punishes us for our sin by causing bad things to happen. But I do believe that there are times when God uses the things that we go through to to discipline us. D.A. Carson puts it like this, a Christian would be foolish to think that every instance of suffering he or she undergoes must necessarily be the result of God's disciplining hand arising out of a particular sin. Meaning that it would be foolish for us to think that every bad thing that happens to us in life is just God punishing us or even God disciplining us. But then he goes on, he says, just as a Christian would be foolish to overlook the possibility that God may be inflicting suffering in a disciplinary Fashion. I struggle with this quote so much. One, because it's, it's a little wishy-washy, but, but two, it's because it just reveals there's no way of knowing. When we go through experiences and trials and difficulties in life, we don't know this side of eternity if it's God disciplining us for something in our life. And so what our trials should do is bring us to a point of self-examination where we just look at our life and see is God speaking to us as a wise heavenly father who disciplines those he loves. It may be in response to a specific unrepentant sin in our life. He may be allowing us to struggle for a moment to grow and develop us in some way. Or it may be nothing. And it may just be because we live in a fallen and broken world where our bodies fail us, people fail us, and bad things happen even to the best of us. I think that's why we are called over and over in scripture and to each other to live and walk by faith. And faith is having all of these unanswered questions and yet still trusting in God, still trusting that he is good and he is loving and he is kind. Or as my, my friend Alan Burris put it, in times of uncertainty, we must be willing to bow to the mystery of God because he is mysterious. He cannot be figured out and solved. He cannot be put in a box like Tom talked about last week where we just have them all figured out and understood. And sometimes it's really hard to bow to the mystery of God, but God has revealed enough of himself to us for us to know that he is good and loving and kind. 
And that if we are going through an act of discipline from our heavenly father, we can trust that it is for our good and the good of others. And the final question is this, what's our response to God's discipline? And I think the best response that we can have is to run to the cross, to remind ourselves that it is through the cross that God shows us his goodness and his grace. Listen to me, friends, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, please hear this. Your heavenly father loves you. He loves you. He is not disappointed in you. He is not ashamed of you for what you have done or what has been done to you. If he is disciplining you, it is out of love, not out of anger. And ultimately it will be for your own benefit because of what it produces in your life. We we see this even in our text in verses 10 through 11. It says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And man, so many of us, we know what that's like. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's ultimate desire for you is for you to live a life of holiness. God wants you to be holy because he knows that it's the best way for you to live. It's the way of life. It's the way of protection. And he will do whatever it takes to lead you there, even if it is painful for a moment. But you can be assured of this. For those who embrace God's discipline, who have been trained by it, we have a hope of an eternal home where one day there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And when we reach that place, I guarantee you, we will say, Father, thank you for your discipline that helped me stay the course and not wander astray. Last week, a friend of mine posted on Facebook something that I think is fitting for us as we close today. He compared religion to the gospel when it comes to discipline. And he said that religion says, I messed up, my dad is gonna kill me. Anyone ever been there before? (laughs) Scared to make that call. I messed up, my dad is gonna kill me. And the reason why religion kind of says it like this is because religion is all about keeping the rules and following them. And if we don't, then God's out to get us. And for those of us who hold on to this disciplinarian view of God, I think that's how we approach him when it comes to our sin. We're afraid of him and what he might do to us. We think that he's out to get us and to punish us. And so, and so we, we take the posture of Adam and Eve when they're caught in their first sin, the very first sin of all, and we hide We hide because of our guilt and because of our shame. But the God that Jesus revealed is the God of the gospel. And he says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. And how freeing is it to have a father that we don't have to run from, but that we can run to. So because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God's wrath was satisfied and the blood that Satan demanded for our sin before he would release us from our guilt was shed by Jesus. God took his punishment of our sin out on Jesus and because of that, Hebrews chapter four tells us that now we can approach the throne of grace not with fear, not with trembling. We can approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Confidence knowing that we will find mercy and grace in our time of need because Jesus paid the price for our sin. 
There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. There is no more fear. And it is all because Jesus willingly gave himself on the cross and took the punishment that our sin deserved so that we can now be set free and forgiven. As we close this morning, man, what better way to do it than by partaking in communion together? A chance when we get to remember Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And so here in a moment, our servers are gonna pass some trays. Each week at Sherwood Oaks, we share in communion together. We, we do this because it reminds us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and now the relationship that we can have with the Lord. And if you're new to Sherwood Oaks, we invite anyone who's a believer in Jesus to partake with us. And the trays are gonna have a little piece of bread that helps us remember his body that was broken, a little cup of juice that helps us remember his blood that was shed. There's nothing magical about these emblems other than they just help us to remember Jesus and what he did for us. And so as we partake in communion this morning on our own, as we reflect on all of his goodness and his grace, may we be reminded of our good and loving heavenly father who is not out to punish us. That's already been done for Jesus. Jesus willingly bore that for you. And now we have new life and a fresh start. We have been forgiven and set free and we can celebrate that this morning. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.